turn in our Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 4. Again, if you need to borrow a Bible, if you'll raise your hand, we can bring one around to you this morning. We're going to camp out in chapters 4 and 5 this morning. We're continuing our study of this great book of the Bible. I don't know about you guys, but I'm having an amazing time once again studying through the book of Revelation. Um, to kind of reset the compass, back in chapter 1, John is instructed to write three things. He's instructed to write the things that he had seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. Now that phrase, will take place after this, in the Greek it's a specific phrase, metatauta, and there's a very clear connection between John's instructions in chapter 1, verse 19, and the beginning of chapter after these things, and it's the exact same phrase, metatauta. So we have moved into the third and final section of the book of Revelation. Let's read chapter one, uh, sorry, chapter four, verse one. John says, after these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you the things which must take place Metatauta, again, a repetition of that same phrase. So if you've ever wondered what heaven is like, look no further than Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Now, these chapters certainly don't tell us everything we can possibly know about heaven. We'll see a lot more details in later chapters of the book of Revelation. But this morning, John gives us a very detailed description of the heavenly throne room of God. Now, if you're a note taker, I'm going to mention four things to you this morning that I'm going to use to provide something of a structure because we've got a lot of ground to cover in two chapters, as you can imagine. We're going to see four things. We're going to see John's physical description of heaven. Secondly, we're going to see the occupants of heaven. Third, we're going to discover who is the focus of heaven. And then finally, we're going to talk about what is the activity of heaven? What is the preoccupation of heaven? So the description of heaven, the occupants of heaven, the focus of heaven, and then finally the activity of heaven. In verse 2, John says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So the first thing we see in John's physical description of the heavenly throne room is the idea of this throne. Now this idea of the throne becomes central to these chapters, chapter 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation. 17 times in these two chapters, the idea of the throne is mentioned. In fact, one commentator wrote this, the book of Revelation may well be called the book of God's throne because God's throne is specifically mentioned more than 35 times in this book. And John this morning will use phrases like around the throne and from the throne, and before the throne, and in the midst of the throne, and upon the throne. It's like, of everything John wants us to know about heaven, there's this throne, and there's one who's seated upon the throne. Bible commentator David Guzik writes, we cannot rightly think about much of anything else until we settle in our mind that there is an occupied throne in heaven, and the God of the Bible rules from the throne. G. Campbell Morgan said, at the center of everything is an occupied throne. By the way, we notice immediately who's not seated upon the throne, us, right? There is a God in heaven 
who rules from this throne. That needs to become central to our theology and our Christianity. Let's look at John's physical description of heaven, starting in verse 3. He says, And he who sat there upon this throne was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on these thrones, John says, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Verse 6, before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. Now we've said before that the book of Revelation has been called the most Old Testament book of the New Testament, and there is much of John's physical description of heaven that has its roots in the Old Testament. It's also important to note, too, that as John is describing this one who sat upon the throne, he does not describe a distinct figure. Adam Clark writes, There is here no description of the divine being so as to point out any shape or likeness. The description aims to point out the surrounding glory rather than the person of the Almighty King. And of course, we remember how God told Moses that no man can see my face and live. 1 Timothy 6.16 says, God dwells in unapproachable light whom no man can see. Now what John does describe, he says, he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone. It's interesting, these two specific stones were the first and the last gems that were embedded into the high priest's breastplate in Exodus chapter 39. What did the high priest do? He represented the people before God's presence. Perhaps these stones are a reference to God being the first and the last. Some have pointed out that the colors of the jasper and sardius stone, which would have been red and white, may be meant to communicate the glory of the empty tomb and the sacrificial blood of Calvary. We read in verse 3 how there's a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. This, of course, reminds us of God's covenant with man. In Genesis chapter 9, immediately after the flood, God says to Noah, I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the whole earth. And this is the sign of the covenant I make between me and you. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be, when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you. Verse 5, John says that from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Immediately we think of Mount Sinai. When Moses went up onto the mountain to meet with God in Exodus chapter 19 and 20, we read of thunderings and lightnings and how God speaks to Moses by a voice. Verse 5 says there are seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, we read about seven specific aspects of the Holy Spirit. David Guzik writes, it isn't that there are seven different spirits of God, but rather that the Holy Spirit possesses all these characteristics, 
He has them in fullness and perfection. Another thing, John mentions the seven lamps burning before the throne. And in verse 6, he says that before the throne there was a sea of glass, like crystal. In the Old Testament tabernacle, and eventually in the temple, which, the book of Hebrews tells us, were scaled down earthly models of this real heavenly throne room, the priests would keep a seven-branched lampstand burning, and there was a bronze laver, which was essentially a big pool. But when Solomon builds the eventual temple, which was more of a permanent version of the tabernacle, passages like 1 Kings 7, 1 Chronicles 18, and 2 Chronicles 4 all refer to this as the bronze sea. So you've got the seven-branched lampstand, the sea. It's all a picture of this real heavenly throne room. It's really pretty cool. Uh, let's talk about some of the occupants of heaven. Now, John's already mentioned some of them. Again, note in verse 4, John says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. So who are these 24 elders? As you can imagine, with just about everything when it comes to the book of Revelation, there's lots of debate over this. Some people say these are angelic beings. Other people say they are glorified humans. We do read here that they are clothed in white robes, and we know from certain passages of Scripture that angels sometimes appear in white robes. Mark 16, John chapter 20, Acts chapter, Acts chapter 1. But we also see saints clothed in white robes in Scripture. Revelation 3, 6, and 7, Isaiah 61, it's a picture of the righteousness which has been imputed to us. Now, the other thing, though, is we don't ever read in Scripture about angels being crowned. And we read towards the end of verse 4 that these elders have crowns of gold on their heads, but we do know that believers will receive different crowns. We talked about this this morning. In our men's small group, 1 Corinthians 9, 2 Timothy 4, 1 Peter 5. We also don't ever read about angels sitting on thrones throughout the Bible. But Ephesians talks about how the church will be seated in the heavenly places. Revelation 3.21, Jesus promises very specifically, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Perhaps the most compelling reason that these 24 elders are not angelic beings. Let your eyes jump ahead to chapter 5 a moment. Take note of something in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. Here we read of a song that is sung by these elders in heaven, and pay particular attention to the lyrics. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, they say, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, watch this, and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. These lyrics make it clear that these 24 elders are not angelic beings, because the angels were never redeemed to God by the blood of Jesus Christ. These are, in fact, representatives of redeemed humanity. By the way, if you're into this kind of thing, Revelation chapter 5, verse 8 
mentions that these 24 elders each have a harp. So this is the passage where we get the idea that people will be playing harps in heaven, just in case you want to know. But who are the 24 elders specifically? The reality is we don't know. Lots of speculation. Some people say they're, they represent the 12 tribes of Israel coupled with the 12 apostles in a picture of God bridging the Old and the New Testaments. We also know there were 24 divisions of the priesthood in 1 Chronicles chapter 24. But Clarence Haynes says, since the Bible is not clear who the 24 elders are in Revelation, these are just ideas that can help us possibly understand who they might be or represent. Now, we do see angels in the heavenly throne room. We'll talk about them in just a moment, but for starters, let's talk about a very specific type of angel that John sees here. Uh, about halfway through verse 6, he says, In the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. Keep reading into verse 7. He says, the and I'm in chapter 4, by the way. He says, the first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. So these are very clearly very otherworldly beings. In the earthly tabernacle, which again, I mentioned a moment ago, was a scaled-down earthly model of this heavenly throne room. In Exodus chapter 26, Moses is instructed very specifically to make the tabernacle with artistic designs of cherubim. Verse 31 repeats the idea. Make a veil woven with an artistic design of cherubim. The idea of the cherubim decorating the inside of the tabernacle is mentioned no less than a dozen times in Moses' instructions of the tabernacle. David Guzik writes, giving the impression to anyone in the tabernacle that they were surrounded by cherubim. The veil separating the most holy place of the tabernacle was decorated with cherubim, adding to the sense of their presence. In fact, God is often referred to as he who dwells between the cherubim. Now, some people might be thinking, okay, what's the big deal? What's a cherubim? Glad you asked that question. Uh, in Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel has a vision, and I'm just going to read to you an excerpt. But see if you notice any similarities here. Ezekiel chapter 1, the prophet writes, I looked and behold a whirlwind coming out of the north. Brightness was all around it and radiating out of its midst like the color of amber. And from, in, from within it came the likeness of, what's this? Four living creatures. Listen to Ezekiel's description of them. He says, each one had four faces, the face of a man. Each, had, each of the four had the face of a lion. Each of the four had the face of an ox, and each of the four had the face of an eagle. By the way, we know these are cherubim because Ezekiel chapter 10 tells us. Bible trivia time, Satan was originally amongst these cherubim, just so you know. But notice Ezekiel's description of them. First of all, there's four of them, and they each have four faces. He says, like a man, like a lion, like an ox, and like an eagle. Now, what did John just describe in the heavenly throne room? Four living creatures. The first is like a lion, the second like a calf, the third is like a man, and the fourth is like an eagle. Now, some people, in my opinion, in an attempt to be overly critical, 
say, well, Ezekiel saw creatures with four faces each. John sees creature with creatures with only one face each. And I would say this, it's probably more likely that John is seeing the exact same creatures, but he is only seeing each of them from a certain angle. And so of one, John sees its face like a man. Of another, John sees its face like a lion. The third, John sees its face like a calf or an ox. And the fourth, the face of an eagle. This becomes a study into itself, looking at the, the ideas of the meanings of the imagery behind this stuff. And we don't have time to go into it all today, but I am going to mention this one thing, just because I think it's really cool. The book of Numbers goes into tremendous detail about how the 12 tribes of Israel were to be arranged as they camped around the tabernacle at the center of their camp. And each of those 12 tribes had a specific symbol or a standard that represented their tribe. It goes back to Jacob's prophecy over them in Genesis 49. But check this out. The four tribes that were camped closest to the tabernacle, they were represented by, Matthew Poole says it, Judah's standard had a lion, Ephraim had an ox, Reuben had a man, and Dan had an eagle. It's pretty amazing. I mean, when you start reading and studying the Bible, it's absolutely amazing. Like, as a writer, I love how much foreshadowing and imagery God has poured into this amazing library of books we call the Bible. But we got to keep going. Okay, who else is in the heavenly throne room? As I mentioned a moment ago, there are definitely angels here. Uh, in chapter 5, verse 11, you may want to look there. John says, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. So just an innumerable number of angels. And if we keep reading into verse 13, John writes of every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, Dave the Guzik writes, John couldn't be any more complete in his description. Truly, this is every creature. So, of course, you know how this, who this includes. This includes you and I, guys, right? We are in, John goes into heaven, and he sees you and I there right now, even though we're here right now, because heaven exists outside of time. That's why the Bible talks about us as already being glorified. Because from God's perspective, we're already seated in heavenly places. Just amazing. Now, I'm hoping you noticed one more occupant of heaven. In chapter 5, verse 6, John says, I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain. This lamb is really the focus of heaven because this, of course, is none other than Jesus Christ himself. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Revelation 13.8 says Jesus is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Let's look at how he's introduced. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 5. In this chapter, the focus shifts a little bit from the throne of chapter 4 to the scroll. We read of a scroll here in chapter 5. It's mentioned eight times, 
And the scroll is very important to our study of the book of Revelation. Let's take note of some things. John says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Remember who that is. That's God the Father. So the Father is seated upon the throne, and he's holding a scroll in his right hand. John says the scroll is written inside and on the back, and it is sealed with seven seals. So this is where we get the idea of the seven seals of the book of Revelation. They're protecting the contents of this scroll. John says in verse 2, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to take the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much. The original language there is I sobbed convulsively. John is just sobbing convulsively. Why? Because no one is found worthy. Not willing, worthy. No one is found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. And this sets up the introduction of the Lamb. Because John says in verse 5, One of the elders comes to him and says, Do not weep. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. These are very clear and popular messianic titles taken from the pages of the Old Testament. So check out what's going on here. God is seated upon the throne, and he's got in his right hand a seven-sealed scroll, and the idea of who is worthy to open this scroll is what's being discussed. So clearly, this scroll must be of tremendous importance. Listen to this description. When a scroll was finished, it was fastened with strings, and the strings were sealed with wax. This particular scroll was sealed with seven seals. There were seven strings around the scroll, each string sealed with wax, and all the seals must be opened before the scroll could be read. And there have been many different suggestions about what the contents of this scroll could be down through the ages. Some have suggested it's the contents of the Old and New Testament. Some have said it's God's declaration of divorce against the nation of Israel. Others have said it's God's sentence against the enemies of the church, or it's the text of the book of Revelation. One very popular idea is that it's the title deed to planet Earth. But William Barclay suggests this idea, that the scroll contains God's last will and testament, his final settlement of the affairs of the universe. Under Roman law, a person's last will and testament was sealed with seven seals. John Walvoord writes, Roman law required a, a will to be sealed seven times, as illustrated in the wills left by Augustus and Vespasian, this seven-sealed scroll, therefore, is the comprehensive program of God culminating in the second coming of Christ. So this is an incredibly dramatic scene, which honestly is like the understatement of the universe, right? We've got God himself, the divine creator of all things, preparing to disclose his final will and testament regarding the affairs of human history. And there is no one 
John says in verse 3, no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth who is able to take the scroll or even look at it. And John says the issue is, verse 4, that no one is found worthy to open or to read the scroll or to look at it until, until, it's like cue the Rocky music, right? John sees this lamb emerging from the midst of God's throne. Now check this out. The lamb isn't beside God's throne. The lamb isn't in front of God's throne. This lamb emerges from within God's throne. The same way that Jesus came from the Father to the earth. And John says, check this out, it is a lamb as though it had been slain, and the language suggests that the sacrifice is still happening. This blows my mind. Adam Clark writes, as if now in the act of being offered. This is very remarkable. So important is the sacrificial offering of Christ in the sight of God that he is still represented as being in the very act of pouring out his blood for the offenses of man. Thus, all succeeding generations find they have the continual sacrifice ready and the newly shed blood to offer. Another commentator writes, There is nothing stale or outworn in the work of Jesus on the cross. Thousands of years later, it is still fresh as the day he died on the cross. This is why in verse 5, John can say, The Lamb has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. I love what Matthew Henry writes about this. He says, before he is called a lion, Jesus here appears as a lamb slain. Jesus is a lion to conquer Satan, but a lamb to satisfy the justice of God. He appears with the marks of his sufferings upon him to show that he interceded in heaven in the virtue of his satisfaction. He appears as a lamb having seven horns and seven eyes, perfect power to execute all the will of God and perfect wisdom to understand it all and to do it in the most effectual manner, for he has the seven spirits of God. He has received the Holy Spirit without measure in all perfection of light and life and power by which he is able to teach and rule all parts of the earth. He comes and he takes the book out of the right hand who sat on the throne not by violence, nor by fraud, but he prevailed to do it. He prevailed by his merit and his worthiness. He did it by authority and by the Father's appointment. God very willingly and justly put the book of his eternal counsels into the hand of Christ, and Christ as readily and gladly took it into his hand, for he delights to reveal and to do the will of his Father. And of course, when this happens, all of heaven just erupts into these joyous exaltations of praise and adoration. And this is where we find the occupation of heaven. Anytime in Scripture that we see the curtain of eternity pulled back and we get a glimpse into heaven, we always see the same thing. Heaven is a place that is saturated with worship. It is dripping with praise. It's as though 
It is the very atmosphere of heaven. It's not so much that it's an activity that we engage in the way that we think of it here, but it's something we're immersed into. John Corson writes, anyone who truly sees the slain lamb cannot help but worship. Charles Spurgeon said, depend on it, my hearer. You never will go to heaven unless you are prepared to worship Jesus Christ as God. They are all doing it there. Think about the prophet Isaiah's vision of heaven in Isaiah chapter 6. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, very similar to John. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the, door, and the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. Think about that description as married alongside what John writes about in Revelation 5.8, that when the Lamb takes the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down before the Lamb, and they sing a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. In verse 11, John says, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. It's almost as though they can't exhaust all the descriptions of God. In verse 13, John says, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And then in verse 14, the four living creatures say, Amen! And the 24 elders fall down and worship him who lives forever and ever. I mean, do you see what's happening here? It's like this constant reinforcing cycle of worship that's taking place in heaven. Back in chapter 4, watch what happens here. We read how the four living creatures don't rest day or night, saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. Now, watch what happens. In verse 9, whenever the four living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, what happens? Then the 24 elders fall down and worship him, who lives forever and ever. And then we see the same thing in chapter 5. In verse 8, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down before the Lamb. That prompts the innumerable company of angels. That prompts every living creature. What happens after that? It all starts over again. The four living creatures say amen, and the 24 elders fall down. Guys, this is why coming to church on time and participating in worship is so important because our worship will prompt one another 
into worship. This is why Ephesians 5.19 sees us speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Colossians 3.6 speaks of us teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And make no mistake about what I'm saying here, okay? We're not talking about us being the focus of our worship. I want to make that very clear. The Lamb is the recipient of the worship. And I mention that because, look, I've led worship for a number of years, but I'll be the first one to say that in a lot of modern-day worship songs, the lyrics are very man-centered. And what you read about these worship lyrics in heaven, I mean, did you see it? You are worthy. Blessing and honor and power and glory belong to you because you did the work. You redeemed us. You were slain. It's all about Jesus Christ. Jesus is the focus of our worship. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, do we sing as much as birds do? Yet what do birds have to sing about compared with us? Do we sing as much as the angels do? But they were never redeemed by the blood of Christ. Birds of the air, shall you excel me? Angels, shall you exceed me? You have done so, but I intend to emulate you and day by day pour forth my soul in sacred song. Why is Jesus the focus and recipient of our worship? There is one dominating thought, and I already alluded to it. You are worthy. Why is Jesus worthy? Revelation 4.11, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. He's worthy because of his creation. But Revelation 5.9 says, You are worthy because you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He is worthy because of his sacrifice, because of his redemption. Which, I didn't put this in my notes, but this I'm sort of having this thought like right in the middle of my study. This kind of blows me away that he's worthy because he created all things. And he's worthy because he redeemed us. Which means he created everything. One of the reasons he's worthy is because he created it all. But he created it all knowing what was going to happen, and he had already decided that he would also be slain in order to redeem it. He is the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. He is our all in all. It is all about Jesus Christ. David Guzik observes how in these verses we read of the price of redemption. He says, you were slain. We see the worker of redemption. You have redeemed us. We see the destination of redemption. He's redeemed us to God. We read of the payment of redemption. It's by his blood. It speaks of the scope of redemption. It's out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And it speaks of the result of redemption. We shall reign on the earth. Is there any reason why we declare he is worthy? And of course, this reinforces another reason why we worship Jesus. Because he's holy. Chapter 4, verse 9, like in Isaiah chapter 6, the four living creatures declare, Holy, 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 
Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. I know when I was growing up, I, I never really knew what holy meant. We would sing it in church, and I'd, what's like, what does this even mean? Holy just means set apart, right? If you have a special pair of shoes, and they're set aside for a specific purpose, they're holy shoes. Mine literally are holy shoes. They're held together by duct tape because I use them to work in the, in the yard. They are set aside for that purpose. The idea of holiness simply has the idea of set-apartness. David Guzik asks, what is the Lord set apart from? He's set apart from creation in that the Lord is not a creature. If all creation were to dissolve, the Lord would remain. He is set apart from humanity. God's not merely smarter than any man or stronger than any man or older than any man or better than any man. He's divine, and we are human. God's holiness is a part of everything he is and does. His power is a holy power. His love is a holy love. His wisdom is a holy wisdom. Holiness is not merely an aspect of God's personality. It is characteristic of his entire being. One final thought as we close. Starting next week in chapter 6, we begin to read about global cataclysmic judgments that are going to be poured out on planet Earth, which will result, make no mistake, in a massive death toll and leave planet Earth reeling. But check this out. What's amazing to think about is that before judgment starts to be poured out, in chapter 6, we see the slain Lamb of God victorious in chapters 4 and 5. One commentator writes this, The coming judgment, beginning in chapter 6, is dictated and administrated by the Lamb, watch this, who already offered an escape from judgment by taking judgment upon himself. The judgment comes upon a world that hates the Lamb and all he stands for and rejects his offer of escape. An author by the name of David Pawson writes, Though Christ is going to bring an end to history, though Christ is going to destroy the civilization we live in, it is the same Christ who did everything he could to save people first. It is Christ whose body was broken and whose blood was shed, that men might never come to this day of vengeance. It is Christ who bled that we might live. Guys, we have not been appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ who died for us. And I would say this, if you do not know this lamb who was slain, that we are looking at and talking of this morning. Don't leave here today until you do. Don't leave here today without finding me or Brenton or Matt or Spud or Jim or Carrie. We would love to pray with you and have you be introduced to this Lamb of God, this glorious Lamb of God who is worthy and high above all things and who loves you dearly to the point that he was willing to allow himself to be sacrificed in your stead to save you of the things that we will read about beginning next Sunday 
as we look at the different camera angles in the book of Revelation. So let me encourage you to come back and join us for that. We're going to close this morning by offering a response time. We've got a couple of worship songs. And I want to say this too. You know, this is a study that really lends itself to meditating and perhaps even taking communion. We have communion available to you in the back this morning. But I just want to ask and remind everybody that during these closing couple of songs, let's not have a lot of movement or conversation in the room. Like if you're, if you're done, if, you're, if you don't necessarily want to be here to worship, and as hopefully we've been inspired this morning from Revelation chapters 4 and 5, just lift up our hearts in adoration to Jesus. Like if that's not what you want to do, that's what we're getting ready to do. And so we want to preserve this time and sanctify this time and ask that we just set it aside and allow the Holy Spirit to be able to minister to people's hearts and perhaps, by God's grace, woo some people to himself. And Jesus, we just, man, we humble our hearts before you today. We're blown away. We're blown away that as we read about in John 14, 6, that you've gone to prepare a place for us. Today we get to read a little bit about what that place is like that you've prepared for us, that this is our home. And Lord, I just want to pray that as your word exhorts, we would set our mind on things above, not on things here on the earth, that we would leave here today just focused on the heavenlies, living this life and, and, and going through the trials of this life, knowing that this is our travel brochure for where we're going to end up. Lord, we love you. We humble our hearts before you. We just now ask you to move in our midst and move on people's hearts and draw people to yourself and just move front and center of our praise and worship. Jesus, be glorified. We pray these things in your name.